John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. God expects us to use our brains. He's given us minds to think. And he doesn't want you to check out when you come here. He wants you to think. So the question that I have for you today is why today's verses? What is the significance of them? Are they just merely a segue between the death and the resurrection? Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Back in chapter 19, Mary Magdalene was only one of two people other than Christ who was identified at the crucifixion of Jesus. And much has been speculated as to why she is mentioned there, with some saying that she was the secret wife of Jesus, or others saying that they were lovers. But these are just the musings of those unsaved, people that are more enthralled with fiction and not with the word of God. Mary was named at the cross because she is named here. She is an eyewitness to the death of this man. He didn't swoon. He didn't pass out and wake up hours or a day later and then run away. The Roman soldiers who handled the crucifixion were artists at their crafts. They were trained professionals that knew every aspect of the process of this most cruel torture and death. They would not have, could not have pierced the side of Jesus and not broken his legs if he had merely passed out because they were masters of death. And he was a dead man. And Mary Magdalene was an eyewitness to all of this as, as we are told in the Gospel of Mark chapel, chapter 15, verses 43 through 47, where we read Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked him for the body of Jesus. And Pilate was surprised to hear that he would have already been dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he had learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And, jo and Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of a rock. And he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, saw where he was laid. She had seen all this happen, and she knew where Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had laid the dead body of the man that she had come to know as God. She had seen the tomb. She had been witness to the stone being rolled across it, as we're told from those Mark verses, and in Matthew 27, and in Luke 23. But did she know? Had she been there at the tomb the following day, the day when the tomb was sealed? We don't know. But we do know that it was sealed because of Matthew 27, verses 62 through 66, which tells us the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter, speaking of Jesus, said, While he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and, and tell the people, he is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. 
And Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. The she, Mary, was an eyewitness to these events as why she is named. And just as Joseph of Arimathea, someone who we've never heard about before, is named in this gospel. And Nicodemus, someone who we've heard only once before, but now who pops up and gives a lifetime's worth of wages in the anointing of the body of Christ. All these people are named because they are all acting in the sovereign will of God. And all have been specifically chosen to complete these actions. Mary was in no way lost when she came to this tomb. She was painfully aware of where it was. And when she got there, she and the others that were with her found a very disturbing surprise. The tomb was open and it was empty. Verse 2. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. When she came to the tomb, she knew that something wasn't right. Have you ever had that happen to you? When you come home or you go to the office or you come to your car and you just automatically, instinctively know something isn't right. Something has happened. Things aren't the way that they were when you last saw them. This was the feeling that she had when she first saw the tomb, the place where she and the others were headed to spend the day in mourning and in prayer. And instead, she found this sealed stone rolled away, and the tomb was empty. And from her statements to the disciples, she instantly thought that they had taken the body of the Lord. They had robbed him of her, robbed him of robbed her of him in life. And now it seemed that they had robbed her of him in death as well. We're never told who they are that she's thinking of. Maybe it was the Romans, but more than likely she's thinking of the religious leaders who had orchestrated the murder and who had seemed to gain the most from his body being taken. Which brings us to verses 3 through 8, which is the reaction of the disciples. And this is not the first time that we hear Peter and the other disciple being specifically given to us as comparison. The first is found in chapter 13, verses 21 through 26 at the Last Supper. There, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, and certain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. There, these two men, Peter and John, are specifically highlighted. And there are many people that will say that Peter and John were working against each other, that their personalities just didn't mesh too well, as given to us in these comparisons over and again. But there, as here in the second comparison, they were working together, not pitted against one another. And in a gospel that so sparsely gives details, 
details concerning mo much of the life of Christ. It gives so few details concerning the flogging of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, and his time on the cross. When details are given, we should take note of them. Verses 3 through 8, listen to this. So when Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb, both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw, and he believed. The tired out. Women who ran to the disciples have given this message to them. And the disciples went to investigate. But their manner in which they did it is peculiar. Why run? I mean, he was already dead. The tomb was already opened. If there was, had a crime had happened, it already had happened. But they couldn't help themselves, so they ran. Why are we told that John outruns Peter? For this is a detail that we are meant to ponder. Was it because he was younger than Peter, which is most certainly true? Was it given to us to let us know that you don't run against John because he's super fast? The reason that it is given is to give us a contrast. They both ran, but John ran faster, verses 5 and 6. John gets to the tomb first, but he doesn't enter in. Is it because he was so gassed that he had no strength left and he's just, ah, ah, ah. but Peter, who had paced himself in his walk with the Lord, who was slow but steady, when he got to the tomb, he was still fresh and he had the strength to enter into it. Is this why this detail is given to us? Is this what we're supposed to glean from this? Well, this might be part of the, of the type of sermons that you've heard preaching about this before. We need to be disciples. We need to rightly handle the word of truth, which means that when we read a text of scripture, we need to exegete the text and not eisegete it. What? Well, the person who would give such a sermon as that, who would make this section of scripture about you and me and about how these men ran and why these details are given as a means to show us how we are supposed to walk the Christian faith, have taken these verses and eisegeted them. They have read into the text. They read a meaning that they desire to have. And many so-called preachers do this. And many so-called Christians follow these men. But just as these verses are given to us as a contrast, so is this method of understanding the meaning of Scripture. If we desire to understand Scripture, we must apply biblical means to do it. We must allow Scripture to explain Scripture. We must exegete Scripture, which means that we get the meaning of the Scripture from the Scripture and not place our desired understanding on it. Even though the contrasting of the foot speed, the one that burns out versus the one that paces himself, that might sound like good logical wisdom. These verses aren't given to us for that reason. 
we do not to get we do not get to misuse the word of God as we desire because we need to remember that the word is God it's not something outside of him and that to misrepresent misrepresent the word is to misrepresent him these verses are given us to cause our minds to contrast the details within them but not the men they both ran one stopped when the other entered but they both saw and what they both saw is of what is what is of importance what we are supposed to think about what is meant to be contrasted they both saw the linen cloths that had been wrapped around the body of Jesus and then there's another detail that is given concerning what it was that they saw. The linen face covering was folded and placed by itself. What is this all about? Why are all these details given to us? Because the Lord desires us to compare. But what he is desiring us to compare, what is it? The disciples from the women? Peter from John? Neither. We are meant to compare death with death and life with life. We are meant to compare the resurrected body of Christ with the man that Jesus brought back to life, Lazarus. Do you recall that event, the one from chapter 11? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb, a tomb much like this tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay across it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead, has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man, I'm sorry, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Those are verses 38 through 44. On that day, these disciples and the women that reported the open and empty tomb, they all came to another tomb. Only that tomb was intact. That stone had not been rolled away. And there was still a dead man in that tomb, one that had to be called out by the Lord, one that when he was called out, he obeyed. But when he came, he came hobbling out, still bound in death, still bound by death, and still bound by the clothes of death. But not so for this man, for this Jesus. The manner in which the disciples saw the linen cloths and the face covering lying neatly folded on the rock altar of the tomb are given to let us know that no one had unwrapped this man. He had unwrapped himself and very calmly, very intentionally folded the garments that were used to cover his dead body. He wasn't in a hurry. And he wasn't bothered by these signs of death. And the emphasis of the face cloth is given to us as a comparison as well. Because we're told in the book of Exodus chapter 34 that Moses covered his face with the cloth. He did this because the people could not look upon the radiant glow that came from his face because he had been with God. But in verse 34 of Exodus 34, we are told this. 
Whenever Moses went in before Yahweh to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. Here's the significance of that folded face covering, that veil that was lying on that stone altar. Jesus has gone to the Father, and he has removed the veil that covered him. Only the veil that he removed was not just a piece of cloth that toned down his face. It was also the veil of his flesh as he returned to be with his Father. And these verses are given to us once again to show us the power and sovereignty of God over all things, including salvation and belief. Because in verse 8, we are told that the, that the beloved disciple, the one that Jesus had just entrusted his earthly mother to, the one that wrote this gospel, we are told that the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and he believed. He believed. Now remember, it's John who penned this gospel, which means that he is revealing his innermost truthful feelings. He saw the stone rolled away. He saw the empty tomb. He saw the folded garments. He saw the face covering. And then he believed. What does this mean? Does this mean that until that moment he really didn't believe? That he really didn't think that Jesus was Lord? Well, verse 9 is given to answer that question. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Verse 9 explains verse 8 and the importance of the empty tomb. That last phrase, that he must rise from the dead, also explains the events that happened a few years ago for these men at another Passover celebration. Events that are told to us in chapter 2 of this gospel, verses 13 through 22, that tells us the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Don't make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and, that the, and the word that Jesus had spoken. Even in those verses, John tells us that not only he, but none of the disciples believed the scripture at this point. This may seem confusing, maybe a bit muddled at this point, but these verses are very important in understanding what true belief is because the resurrection explains Scripture. It unfolds it. It fulfills it. And Scripture explains the resurrection. It unfolds it, not just some of the Scripture, but all Scripture. And outside of the resurrection of Jesus, you cannot truly understand Scripture. And you cannot truly be saved. And this has profound meaning in our understanding and belief. 
Because if you do not see the empty tomb for what it represents, you cannot see Scripture for what it represents. And you can't believe. And this is why we must preach Christ and Him crucified. Why when we present the truth of God to anyone, we must tell them the whole truth of God, that He is, and that they have committed treason against Him and stand in eternal judgment, a judgment that we weren't originally created for, but because of our treason, which is called sin, because of this reality, we face judgment, a judgment that is called the cup in this gospel, the cup that caused God incarnate to bleed drops of blood, the cup that so vexed the soul of Christ that he petitioned the Father at least three times to let it pass. But he took that cup, He became sin for us, and he had to die to do so. And this empty tomb, those folded clothes, that that rolled away stone, they are the linchpin to this reality. Because if Jesus had just died, if he had just been flogged then crucified, then we could never know, we could never be sure that the sin price had been paid in full. And because he is the word, and the word had to be fulfilled in order that we can believe, he had to rise. Because scripture had foretold not only the coming of the Messiah and his eternal reign, but it also foretold his death, as in Isaiah 53. To fulfill, to explain all of those scriptures, Jesus had to die and then had to rise once again. Because scripture has to to be completed. <clears throat> Scriptures such as six, Psalm 16.10, where God says, You will not abandon my soul to, your, to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Scriptures such as Isaiah 25.8 says, He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. Scriptures such as Daniel 7.13 and 14, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And the effects of those verses of the reality of those verses, of this everlasting king, they're promised as well, such as in Isaiah 26, 19, which tells us, your dead will live, your corpses will rise, you who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. And scripture tells us that we're not just raised in ourselves, but that we are raised in him. Isaiah 43, 10 through 11 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, and when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, and out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many, us, to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And the prophets, the prophets somehow saw themselves in that one that would redeem them. Hosea, the prophet Hosea said in Hosea 6.2, 
He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day. He will raise us up on the third day that we will live before him. And the prophet Hosea even went further than that. In chapter 13, verse 14, he said, Shall I ransom them for the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? Mocking death, he said, O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? These are the contrasts that we are meant to see and the effects that we are meant to understand. And then we come to verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes. After the events that were told of beginning in verse 1, after all the running back and forth to the tomb, after finding the body of Jesus was gone, no longer where it had been placed, after finding the burial clothes neatly folded, after all of this, we come to verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Is the fact that they went home noteworthy? Because, I mean, doesn't everyone go home at some point? No matter how dramatic, exciting, or spiritually moving the events of a day were, we all end up just going home. But verse 10 has given us to remind us of a promise that Jesus had made to the disciples back. He made a promise to these disciples back on the cusp of that upper room meal. Back in chapter 16, when after they had told him, you are finally speaking clearly, it's then that we are told Jesus said, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be each scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Verses 31 through 32. They saw the empty tomb. They saw the death clause. They believed. But then they went home. That they went home isn't the thing that we're supposed to be focusing in on, to understand. It's that they went home without understanding. They were scattered. They weren't united together, and they had left Jesus. I mean, these women were the only ones that we were told, even mentioned Jesus by name in this section of Scripture, verse 2. Think about this. The disciples weren't going with the women early in the morning looking for Christ. They weren't coming to this tomb to mourn. And when they did come, they were looking for a dead man and equated Jesus with the, the, the Son of Man, the Son of God. They equated him to where his earthly body was. And in verse 2, the women said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and they, we don't know where they have laid him. None of them remembered the promises made by Jesus. They didn't believe yet. And verse 1 is important in understanding why. Verse 1, it is critical understanding this gospel and the life of Christ because this gospel is written with the creation week in mind. The life of Christ was the restoration of the creation week, the fulfilling of it, the completion of it. Understanding that God through John wrote this gospel specifically in this way is critical to understanding the intended meaning of it. Beginning with verse 1 of chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. The verses from today, those that speak of the resurrection of Jesus, begin with. Now, 
on the first day of the week. The verses from chapter 1, they take us back to the day of creation. And there we're forced to think, to see, to force through, or they're forced to think through and understanding that the word, the word that we hold in our hand is nothing less than God himself. No, it's not the paper and ink that is God. It's the message, the complete message. And this message, this word, would be the cross that he, Jesus the word, would bear. The hour that he, Jesus the word, that was with God, was living for. He, it was the purpose of the word that was Jesus, that is God. It was in his entire being. And John 1 continues, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And verse 1 of our text today be, continues in like manner. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And the darkness that Mary walked in on that morning was just not merely an absence of the sun, of light, because there was also an absence of the sun and his light as well. The absence of the sun that will be revealed in a matter of minutes to her, but the reality of his eternal presence of the sun won't be revealed until she is confronted with the risen sun. It is then that she will be confronted with the reality that the sun shone in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. We see in our text here today comparisons. The named women from the unnamed disciples. The actions of the women from the actions of the men. The actions of one disciple from the other. And all these comparisons are given us to, to cause our minds to compare Again, like I said, we're supposed to use our brains. But we're not supposed to care, compare these earthly things. They are given us to compare something much grander. Because God desires us to see the life of Jesus and the recreation of man in light of, in comparison to the first and original creation as told to us in Genesis. The first 18 verses of chapter 1 of this book set the scene. They set the stage for the comparison. Day one of the original creation is given to us in chapter one, beginning with verses one through five, and then nine through 14, and then 19 through 28. And then in verse 29 of chapter one, begins with the next day, as day two. <clears throat> verse 35 of chapter one begins with the next day, day three. Verse 43 of chapter 1 begins with the next day, verse 4. And then, verse, and then chapter 2, verse 1 begins with on the third day, day 6. And the rest of chapter 2 through chapter 19, verse 30 are all the sixth day. The day that man was originally created. The day that the Son of Man, the Son of God would reveal the essence of what the original man was and is. Because he is the second Adam, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, who came to fulfill complete scripture and restore communion between God and man. And then we're given verse 1 of chapter 20, which is the seventh day. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, 
while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. In the creation narrative, God rested from his work on the seventh day. And he has rested from his work in recreation now as well, here on the seventh day. And this gospel not only was written with the comparison of the original creation in mind, but another, in another way, another similar way, there was also written with seven specific signs that correlate with the seven days of creation. Because in chapter 2 of this gospel, it opens with the account of the wedding feast. When Jesus turned water into wine, we all remember that. In verse 11 of chapter 2, John tells us this. This, the first sign, or his first signs, Jesus did in Canaan and Galilee and manifested his glory. In verse 18 of that chapter, the Jews who are told who have asked Jesus after the wedding feast, after he traveled to Jerusalem and cleansed the temple, it's when that they asked him, what sign do you do for showing us these things? And his response to this was verse 20. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And John then interjects the reality that they, just like the Jews, did not, could not understand what Jesus meant by this statement. They couldn't understand that this would be the sign that would illuminate all the other signs and wonders that he did. The sign that would explain, illuminate, and reveal the meaning behind all other six signs that are given to us in the Gospel of John. And in fact, all the signs that he did. The sign that happened in three days, when he will raise it up, that sign is so important that even the first verse from chapter 2 begins with, on the third day. The raising up of the temple that Jesus told these religious leaders was not understood by them or the disciples at that time. But John reveals what that raising up of that temple is, what it meant in verses 21 through 22 of chapter 2. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And this is not the only time that Jesus pointed to the seventh sign as the sign that would most fully explain all his signs. In Matthew chapter 12, we're told of another time that the Jews, theirs described to us as Pharisees and scribes, came to him asking for a sign to explain who he was. In verse 39 and 40, he gave them the same answer. He told them, an evil and adulterous generation seek for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And saints, I want you to think about this. From that verse, we are meant to understand that real people, actual events, people that, that actually, actually lived, the prophet Jonah, those things that actually happened, those events happened centuries earlier and they were they were recorded and they were wondered at by people wondered at why why did this happen to jonah what was the meaning behind that even those events are under the sovereign control of god and happened to explain and point to the reality of this last sign of jesus in recreation did did jonah actually live did those events actually happen yes and they happened to foreshadow the reality of the events that we're reading about today. 
The empty tomb is more than just a truth that we debate people over. It's more than just an interesting segue from the death of Christ to the resurrection of Christ. We are meant to marvel at the empty tomb. We are meant to wonder at the power of God, not in merely making a human disappear, but what that human did and where he went. Those are the things that we are supposed to wonder at. Mary couldn't understand, could not yet know. Peter and John couldn't either, nor could any of his disciples. They would need to see the resurrected Jesus to fully understand, to know the wonder and working power of God in salvation. That Je- because that Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life, that's meaningless outside of the empty tomb. That he willingly laid his life down for his friends, it's useless outside of the empty tomb. That he would willingly become the Lamb of God would be pointless outside of the empty tomb. The empty tomb is an essential part of the gospel and a faithful gospel presentation as well. One that we hear, we can read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 5. When Paul said, For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures, and that he was buried, and on the ra- he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Well, let's break down that gospel presentation. The first thing that we need to understand is that everything within it is of first importance. These are the things that you have to believe to be a Christian. These are the things that we have to preach and teach as of first importance. Christ died for our sins, and in doing so, he fulfilled Scripture. That event was told to us beginning in chapter 18 of John, when he was arrested in a garden, perhaps the same garden that Mary came and found that empty tomb at. And the events that culminated with Jesus hanging on a tree, bloodied, beaten, and dying, when he uttered only those things that would fulfill Scripture. Think about that. When he said, Woman, Behold your son, and to John, behold your mother. And to the thief who was on the cross next to him, who was also of the elect, truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise, as told to us in Luke 23, 43. And all those things were in fulfillment of Jeremiah 31, 31, concerning the new covenant that was promised. And then he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? as we're told in Mark 15, 34, which is the fulfillment of Psalm 22. It's actually the first verse of Psalm 22. And then, I thirst. The fulfillment of Psalm 69, verse 21. And then the last two things that we are told that Jesus said from the cross. It is finished or completed, John 19, 30. And then, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, Luke 23, 46, which is the fulfillment of Psalm 31, 5. You should have noticed, I hope that you were paying attention, that there was one thing that Jesus said from the cross that isn't a fulfillment of Scripture. And that was given to us in John chapter 19.30 when he said it is finished or completed. And this is because his entirety of his life was the completing of the Scripture. 
This was the message that he gave over and again when confronted about who he was and, and the meaning of him raising up this temple in three days. Why he did the things that he did, as explained to us in John 4:34, when he explained, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And in John 17:4, I have glorified you on earth by accomplishing the work that you gave me to do. And Matthew 5.17, when he says, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them or complete them. But let's go back to that gospel presentation in 1 Corinthians. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Jesus died for our sins, and he was raised on the third day. This is the essence of the gospel message, the message of first importance. But saying it this way, presenting it this way, is not the essence of the message that the gospel was given to us, that Paul received from Christ himself. Yes, he did die for our sins, and yes, he was raised from the dead, but we can't neglect or remove the importance of the reason why he did these things. In accordance with Scripture. The Scripture was the rule for his life. This is the thing that we need to understand. This is the thing that we need to think about the next time that you're wrestling with a clear command from God. Do I obey or not? Should you be giving? Should you be unequally yoked? Should you be separating yourself from the world? Should you be making the word of God the plumb line of your life? Christ never wavered in that. And it's all about his life. It's all about the word. And we are meant to marvel at that empty tomb. We are meant to wonder at the power of God. The word, not in merely making a human disappear, not in merely taking the human from this earth as he did with Enoch. We are meant to wonder at that human that disappeared, that human that is the word, wonder at what he did and where he went. Those are the things that we're supposed to wonder at as we look at that empty tomb. Where did he go? And what was the significance of the seventh sign? First Peter 3 tells us, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the or for the righteous, for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. That's 1 Peter 3.18. And verse 18 makes an important statement concerning what happened there on that day. Jesus died. His body died, and he died for a specific reason, for our sins. But his spirit he rendered back to God. Committed to God is told to us in Luke 23, 46. And then verses 19 through 20 of 1 Peter tells us, In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they did not formally obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through, this, through water. In his spirit, he went. And no, Jesus didn't go to hell. 
He went to preach the gospel of truth, to reveal the truth of the reality of those of verse 20 of 1 Peter tells us formerly did not obey. He went to a place called Abraham's bosom, as told to us in Luke 16, 22. Because those Old Testament saints who could not understand, how in the world did I get to heaven? How did I get here? Which is why Peter speaks of the patience of God in preparation for the ark of the salvation of the specific Old Testament people. They were looking forward to a Savior, one who would redeem them. They were in faith believing even though they couldn't see. And the ark, just like all things, are just a shadow of the real, the real vessel that would safely bring the elect of God into salvation, who is the incarnate person, the Jesus Christ. And in Colossians 2, 13 through 15, we are also told where he went and what he did. It tells us, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. What he did. By canceling the record of debt against, that stood against us with its legal demands. This he nailed aside, or nailed, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities by putting them to open shame, by triumphing over them in him. Still not sure what he did? Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. There too we're told of what Jesus was doing during those three days. He was triumphing over the rulers and authorities. 1 Corinthians 15, 51-57 tells us, Behold, I will tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall, we come, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you're sitting there thinking, but how does God give us victory over death? Because the last I checked, 100% of the world's population continues to die. We all deal with death and the effects of death all the time. Once again, this is why that seventh sign, that empty tomb, is so important. Why we need to grasp the importance of it. For unless the Lord returns, we will all die, as Christ did in his flesh. We will not have victory over that death. But listen to the continuation of those First Peter 3 verses, verses 21 through 22. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. As a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the res resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. And again, no, Peter was not saying or even implying that baptism saves you. 
that you must be baptized to be saved. Remember, we have to interpret Bible in context. Peter was just talking about Noah and the flood and how the ark was um, through the flood was a type of baptism. What Peter is saying here has nothing to do with the act of baptism itself. What the person who is being baptized is doing, but what Jesus did. And how the person, because of the appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus, how he obeys and submits to baptism, aligning ourselves, aligning ourselves and themselves with and in Jesus. And Jesus is resting on the seventh day. He's resting in his triumph over sin, over Satan, and over death. And he is triumphing over the prince and the power of, this air, of the air. And what was it that Jesus has done now that he has died and has been resurrected? He's gone to heaven, and he sits at the right hand of the Father. Romans 8.34 tells us, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Saints, Jesus is interceding continually for you and for me. And at the same time, God is resting on the seventh day. The seventh sign of Christ has given us an order that we can know that he achieved victory over death over the prince of the power of the air, that his sacrifice was sufficient, and for this reason he was raised and has gone to the Father. He was then and is now making intercession for you. You need to get this clear in your head. Don't think that Jesus is looking at his Father trying to explain you. or trying to explain how in the world you got into this family. All that explanation was done back on Friday when he was working. The intercession that he is making for you and for me now is himself. Us in him as he basks in the glory being bestowed on him by the Father. As he glorifies the, the Father through his obedience. Saints, the empty tomb is important because the cross may have been the instrument that killed Jesus, but it was the empty tomb that revealed the reality of his resurrection to all mankind. This is the seventh day. What we're reading about is the seventh day, the day of rest, the Lord's day, which is why the Sabbath, the day that the church comes together for corporate worship, has always been Sunday from the birth of the church forward. Because the empty tomb is the seventh sign. The sign that gives is given to all that thirst. The sign that is given to all that are heavy laden. The sign that says, come and take my yoke. For my burden is easy and my load is light. And you will find rest for your souls. And no other sign is needed. And no other sign will do, because it is finished. It is completed. Jesus is risen. The tomb is empty. He is risen indeed. Let's pray.